talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It's Chad Michaels in for Scott Thompson. Well, actually, in for Scott Bradley, who was in for Scott. Anyway, it's Hamilton Today. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Um... Glad to be back. Glad to be doing something this afternoon on a Friday afternoon. And uh, what can make it better than by eating and going down to a very, very picturesque part of Burlington. That is the Spencer Smith Park area. You know it there. I mean, really, on a day like today, you walk by, you look at the water glistening and the pier, and it's just breathtaking. The Burlington Food Truck Festival is back. It's today until Sunday in Spencer Smith Park and uh, joining us to talk about the Food Truck Festival is the executive director of Canadian Food Truck Festivals. Ben Freeman joins us on CHML. Ben, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Uh, great. Uh, the question is, how are you? I mean, you couldn't ask for a better day for this. What a beautiful weekend we've got here. You know, the sun's shining, the beer's cold, the ah. food is delicious. It's going to be a great weekend. <laughs> I notice how you mentioned beer first. It kind of got to whet people's appetite. <laughs> Yep, helps the food go down. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, this event um, and how it ended up. Uh, well, first of all, we know why it ended up at Spencer Smith Park because it's absolutely gorgeous. But but kind of talk about this festival and kind of your role and what you do in bringing these type of events to cities. So Canadian Food Truck Festivals is the organizing body for the event, for the, uh, the Burlington Food Truck Festival. We produce four events in Ontario. We start the season off here in Spencer Smith Park, and then we move to uh, Toronto, then Pickering, and then we finish up the season on Labor Day weekend in Brampton. Each one of the events, we've got uh, about 40 food trucks. We have live music, eating challenges, cold beer. And, and great times. So they're, they're really wonderful events. Now, when you talk about eating challenges, and I know this is not the same, but I think of Joey Chestnut scarfing down those hot dogs. It's really annoying and, uh, you know, quite nauseating. You're not quite talking something like that, I hope. No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. You know what? We pull, we pull half a dozen people out of the audience. We bring them up on stage. Yep. And uh, it's always a competition about speed. Who can eat a corn on the cob the fastest or a pizza or a poutine? Ooh. Never about quantity. Never about uh, 50 hot dogs at once, that's for sure. Who can eat pizza the fast? You know, uh, what time are you doing that? Because I'm on the Euro 6. I may scoot down. We're going to do it tonight. We're going to do one at <laughs> 6 o'clock tonight. Come on down. <laughs> I'll see if I can do that. So let's talk about some of the places uh, and the food uh, foodies, if you will, that are taking part. You mentioned corn. You mentioned uh, pizza and other stuff. I understand there's like Mexican food, Donair places. Kind of talk about the different, uh, if you will, brands of food that will be served. Oh, for sure. We've got one of the guys here. He's serving oxtail poutine. We've got dumpling trucks. We have barbecue ribs pizzas, there's mac and cheese, some pretty cool chicken sandwich spots. We have tons of different uh, tacos. There's just literally something for everybody. It's, uh, it's, it's a great lineup. When you talk about oxtail poutine, my wife and I actually had a conversation about this. Not so much uh, oxtail poutine, but just seems to me that oxtail is something that not a lot of people get an appreciation for. But when they can find it in the store and get it at a reasonable price and they eat it, they think to themselves, you know what, this stuff's pretty good. That's it. And you know what? What a better place to do it than Spencer Smith Park this weekend. So also I understand that... um, Donations, admission is free, which is really, really uh, a wonderful thing. But uh, you're also uh, accepting donations for a very worthwhile cause. Talk about that. That's right. So all of our events, they're free to attend. But we have some donation stations set up at the entrances, and we support the Kids Foundation. 
So if people like, they can open their wallets, they can throw a couple bucks into our donation stations. We have some fun stickers that we're going to hand out that say, you know, calories don't count on the weekend, ah. angry, or some other fun things that we've thought up. And, uh, and, and like, like we said, it's up to you. We're happy to have everyone come out, and, and no donation is too small for a great cause. Now, I understand as well that uh, you're having a children's village with things like bouncy cow. What is the age limit? Because I love bouncy cancels, but the thought of me jumping around and knocking a kid out of the bouncy cancel was not, it's not a good thing, uh, Ben. So talk about uh, that type of activity for the kids as well. For sure. So, you know what? Normally we do have a children's midway. This year we actually didn't set it up. Um, you know, we, we decided that we're going to focus more on the food and the music. But uh, families are all more than welcome. Lots of place to, to sit and, and spend a great weekend with some friends and family. Now, rides, uh, apparently, uh, that's part of it as well, too. There are some rides for kids? No, we've, we Nothing? cut out the midway for this one. Okay, sorry, yep. Yeah. So, and, uh, and you know what, we're just, we're just focusing on food and the eating challenges and the music. All right, so let's talk about the times. Uh, we, we You open up uh, at 5 o'clock this afternoon. Um, I understand you're going until 10 o'clock tonight and pretty well all day tomorrow and Sunday? That's right. So we're going from 5 till 10 tonight. Saturday is noon until 10 o'clock, and Sunday is noon until 8. So you're talking over 30 food trucks. I, I would suspect, Ben, that there's not a lot of uh, cajoling and convincing and twisting of arms to have these people getting involved in something as great as this. Absolutely not. As soon as we, we put the word out, all the trucks are, are flocking to the event. And at the same time, as soon as we open the gates at 5, I'm sure we're going to see lots and lots of attendees rushing in, getting in line to get some delicious food. Now, um, how many years, uh, and pardon me for uh, not being really, I'm, I'm kind of foggy about this only because COVID played such a huge part in our life for two years. This isn't the first time that you've been in Burlington, is it? No. So no. we're going to call this our fifth annual. Okay. There's a, we had a little bit of a, a hiatus because of COVID. Yep. But the, the organization, we've been, we've been putting on food truck festival events since 2013. So what, you talk about doing four and then the last one on Labor Day. Uh, how busy are you, if you will, in the off-season, say in, oh, I don't know, in February when the snow is flying? I would presume that things are busy, but maybe not quite as uh, as uh, hectic as they are now. Definitely not as hectic as they are in the summertime. But, you know, putting on these, these large-scale events, it's it's a year-round activity. So we're we're planning in the off-season you know, working with all the different municipalities, getting everything in place. So when we roll in and we're ready for the weekend, you know, all the all the boxes are checked and we're we're ready to go. So you're talking about rolling in. I presume all the bo- all the trucks are now there. They're getting their engines revved, so to speak, and getting ready to go. That's it. Everyone's set up. They're just doing the last couple couple touches, getting getting everything ready for this afternoon. And uh, and the bands are here. Stage is on. We're ready to go. All right, it's the Burlington Food Truck Festival, the fifth, well, we can't say annual, it's the fifth time that they have been (laughs) in uh, the Burlington uh, Spencer Smith Park uh, area, a gorgeous place for uh, any time of the day or of the year, and the the Burlington Food Truck Festival is on. Ben Friedman, the executive director of the Canadian Food Truck Festival, great way to start. Have yourself a great weekend, enjoy the weather, and uh, maybe I'll get a chance to pop down and maybe scarf down some Zav with you. Sounds good. I can't wait to see you. All right. Thanks very much, Ben. 
on a beautiful Friday afternoon. It's a nice day to take a walk. And when you have a week, sunny weekend coming up, it's uh, an opportunity for some people to take a long Long walk for a really good cause. Uh, joining us for the next few minutes is a man named Anthony Ravita, who is uh, walking for 24 hours around the Dundas Driving Park. And he joins us here on CHML. Matthew, thank you for joining us and uh, good afternoon. Happy Friday. Hey, Ted. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Uh, the sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. And we're just over here prepping, as you said, for this daunting uh, 24 hour walk that I had. So let's uh, let's go first of all and talk about this. So we Dundas Driving Park is where you're going to be walking. Uh, it's got enough of a, um, the circles and you know what have you as opposed to just walking around a track and which could be quite boring. Talk about uh, the 24 hour walk and why you're doing this. Yeah, so Dundas Driving Park uh, it's a perfect location as you mentioned. You know it's it's a long loop instead of like a high school track where it's 800 meters and I might get dizzy and bored after a while and things like that. And how this really came together was my brother passed away. uh, His name was Anthony, passed away 14 years ago. And it wasn't until, you know, three years ago where we actually found out the truth behind his, his death. And that was from an overdose. And you know, for people who are familiar with me or who are not, I'm very, uh, you know, open to the community about my struggles with mental health, specifically suicide and depression. And I just felt that having this information about my brother's death, it really resonated with me and that this is a new avenue for me to explore and to bring awareness to. And that, you know, I don't want these people who are going through these issues to suffer in silence. And I thought that why not create something like this walk to bring awareness to a very stigmatized uh, topic when it comes to overdose. And, uh, and you mentioned uh, off the top there, uh, Matthew, that uh, you know a lot of people didn't know what happened. And I guess in many ways, was this hushed up because people had this, this quote-unquote stigma of don't tell anybody how he died because we really don't want people to know? Yeah, that's exactly how it is. Uh, we were told it was from a brain aneurysm at the time. And I think just at that time, this again, this was 2008, and family and parents, you know, it's a different time where a lot of those stigmas were a lot more magnified back then. And I don't blame them, you know, I don't have any children myself, and I empathize with families who are going through, uh, you know, such a drastic change to their life as, as a death to your child. I can only imagine, right? So. You know, I don't necessarily blame my family or anyone for how everything kind of turned out. But it was now that, you know, I'm 28, I'm, I'm creating my own journey and my own path through my life that I wanted to actually take control of this narrative and change how people are viewed who have died from an overdose. Because my brother was more than someone who died from an overdose. And I don't want that to be what his lasting image is. Now, I understand that uh, obviously that something like this is really traumatic and really difficult to accept. And and some people uh, do these, uh, something happens and they do things in different ways. And you, uh, I I know you spent a couple of months uh, at St. Joe's after the death of your brother. Talk about that important uh, piece, if you will, into whatever recovery you've had since your brother died. Yeah, really, at that time, you know, I was 14 years old and going through all this different transition. I was just entering high school at St. Mary's Secondary School, and I really didn't have the resources and the outlets to kind of express how I was feeling. I didn't feel like I had any anyone or any organization really to talk to about someone having 
specifically a sibling passed away from an overdose and I really just crumbled. Uh, you know, I suffered from a lot of depression and kind of what I alluded to earlier is that my parents just lost a child. You know, I didn't want to burden them. I didn't want to have them know that another child was depressed and contemplating suicide. And that's when I eventually, you know, almost took my own life, attempted to take my own life. And that's why I got admitted into care. And throughout that journey is what's allowed me to kind of be who I am today, creating that community, learning from nurses, learning from doctors, being educated on resources like Kids Help Phone. Um, that are out there to kind of supply that, you know, and bridge that gap for individuals who are suffering. And I think that's what's allowed me to kind of be in this individual and in this mental health space that I am today. I'm, I'm curious, uh, not that it's not a gorgeous park, why Dundas Driving Park as opposed to, I don't know, other places in the area that uh, could have been uh, equally efficient? For sure. It's a good question. Uh, I grew up in Dundas, my brother and me, and that's actually where my brother uh, passed away was in Dundas and a lot of my family are in that area and it's a really it's really a park that hits home with me and very sentimental there's actually a picture of me and my brother playing in the old Dundas driving park pool and so when I was looking at locations I was thinking of schools and things like that but I was like you know I kind of gravitated towards the Dundas driving park and just being in that atmosphere and, and essentially having my brother there with me in spirit uh, and where we grew up as a young, as young children. How are you now? Um, and I realize that, you know, things will never be the same. And I really don't like when people say, how are you? Because it's such a such a, <laughs> a, a throwaway question. But all these years later, how are you since what happened? See, my life uh, has forever changed, you know, kind of what you mentioned there. And it's changed, you know, in a good way. And of course, you know, I, when people hear that and say, well, how can you look for a silver lining or how can you look for a positive in something so traumatic? Like, I can't change the past. I can't change what happened to my brother. I went through the issues. I went through the roadblocks and the barriers that I had to overcome. And it's a testament to kind of who I am as an individual. And I'll remember those scars and I'll remember his legacy and who my brother was but I wouldn't change who I am. It, it, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be talking to you today, Ted, to be quite honest. I may not even be in this same capacity in the mental health space, uh, being an ambassador, doing all these different types of roles, looking to start my own not-for-profits. I wouldn't be doing any of this. And some people might hear and say that, well, you know, that's kind of, how can you view it that way? But I don't, they don't have to agree with my ways of viewing it. I want to use my brother's death as a positive light moving forward and not just attach that tragedy to something being negative all the time that we have to kind of tiptoe around when it comes to that subject matter. So let's talk about what happens then uh, starting tomorrow at three o'clock at uh, Dundas Driving Park. You're, you're walking around the park. How many people are joining you? Will people be joining you? Is, is there somebody that's brave enough to join you 24 hours walking around the park? <laughs> I've had a few people say that they want to try and come out for 12 hours and I'm like, you know what? I don't think people really understand, even though in some people's minds it's just walking, uh, after so many hours, A, it's, you get bored, and, yeah. and, and B, it's, um, it's really taxing on your body. But I do, um, I do have a few links up uh, on Doodle where I'm having people sign up for different time slots. I have over about 25, 30 people signed up uh, for combined each day, which is amazing. Uh, I'm going to actually also have a tent set up where my beautiful fiance will be there for most of the time, as much as she can, as much as she can last throughout that time, uh, to provide refreshments and, and things like that. I've been fortunate enough to have Pita Pit and the local Starbucks supply refreshments and pitas for the day for people who are coming out. 
And it's overall, it's going to be a great atmosphere. You know, the sun is shining is a model that I use. So I'm, I'm glad it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow. And I'm just looking forward to people who are able to come out. A uh, 24-hour walk uh, to raise awareness about the emotional toll and trauma caused by over- fatal overdoses. Matthew Ravita, congratulations on what you're doing. I know it's uh, out of something terrible can come something good. And this is a prime example. Uh, don't try to set any uh, records when it comes to walking tomorrow. Uh, just make sure that you pace yourself, hydrate yourself, stay healthy, and hopefully we can maybe chat maybe next week about uh, what happened during the walk and uh, and uh, how much money you raised. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely will. I know uh, my fiance is in the other room. She's a registered nurse. She's telling me, yeah, you, you can't try and tough this out. You have to make sure you have your hydration, eat yep. your food along the way. So I'm looking forward to the walk. And again, Ted, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of give me this platform to discuss this. And yes, I would definitely... Love to come on next week and tell you how uh, crippled my body is after this long walk. (laughs) Matthew, thanks for joining us. Best of luck. Thanks, Ted. One of the key players for the Tiger Cats is not in the lineup for the big game against the Ottawa Red Blacks uh, tomorrow. The Tiger Cats return from their bye week tomorrow to take on the Red Blacks at Tim Hortons Field. The two teams enter the game as the only two winless clubs in the CFL, as the Tiger Cats, of course, coming off that loss to Edmonton on Canada Day. Now, if you haven't heard uh, yet, we had it on CHML News earlier today. Uh, Simone Lawrence is out for six games. He's been placed on the six-game injured list with a groin injury suffered at the end of practice yesterday. Kyle Wilson will take his place. Well, at the news conference, head coach Orlando Steinar was asked if the injury will affect his team. Depends on the team. I think if uh, my, my, the answer for this football team, I believe, is no. I can say that with confidence, and you know, I'd encourage you to ask uh, that to anybody else that stands up here and hear their response. Now, uh, Steinar was also asked, because, of course, a team uh, suffered the loss to Edmonton, went on a bye week. Sometimes that can be problematic. So he was asked how the team practiced this week coming off that loss and the bye week. I think it's different every week. I think the things that you emphasize in your meetings, things that you emphasize on the tape, uh, you just want to see that type of improvement out on the field. Uh, I found over time that, you know, I've been a part of great practice weeks and we've found a way to not win. And I've been part of weeks where you thought that we don't have a chance and we go out and play our best ball. Um, I, my biggest thing and our biggest thing is we're not going to leave anything to chance. We're going to aim to do the best we can each and every time. So you, we don't try, really gauge it. We There's certain aspects of practice where we might be working on down and distance. We might be working on uh, placement of our punts and kickoffs. And those are the types of things that you want to see positive. And very rare uh, is it that every single period of every practice goes exactly according to plan. Uh, he, I've always admired his honesty. I've known him for years, and he's never, uh, you know, shied away from a question. So let's let's ask him this one, which somebody did at the news conference today. The team is 0-4. There is a lot of talk about what's happening to the team if they lose tomorrow. So, Coach, and he added extra pressure. Many people that brings up 0-4 or everybody from the outside because that's what it is. You know, we've uh, unfortunately earned that, but we don't talk about that, right? That's not the fo- – what, what does focusing on that do for anybody? And I'm not suggesting that you're saying anybody's focusing on it. We know what it is, and we'll continue to answer those questions until we win. But – Uh, If we spend our time looking backwards, we'll never move forward. 
Well, let's uh, let's talk about that. As we mentioned, uh, the uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers are first in the uh, in the West in the Stampeders. Those two teams meet uh, uh, tonight. It's going to be a great ball game. And then, of course, Saskatchewan, BC, Edmonton. As we mentioned earlier today, uh, the one loss record for the West is eighteen and six. For the East, it is two and fourteen. So a slight discrepancy between those two. And yet, and I know what you're going to say, and I know the fans on the fifth quarter were calling after the game against Calgary, and they were calling after the game against Edmonton. This team is not going to win a game this year, and blah, blah, blah. Yes, they are. Because here's the point. You're not going to go 0-18 this season. You're not. So the Tiger Cats... Put it this way, the Argonauts playing uh, the um, out west or out east rather tomorrow um, in the touchdown Atlantic game against Saskatchewan. Argos are one and two. Montreal lost last night, gave away the game to Edmonton, should have won. They're one and four. And then Hamilton and Ottawa are 0 and four. So Argos two points, Montreal two points, Ottawa zero, and Hamilton no points. So should the Tiger Cats win? and the Argos lose, then we have a three-way tie for first place. Now, I understand how that sounds. I get it. And yes, there will be a crossover this year. I get it. But that's the way the cards have been dealt. And the way that uh, the uh, schedule is going for the Tiger Cats, you never say it's a must-win because coaches hate that and players hate that and everybody talks about that because we know that there's no must-win until you actually get uh, into a playoff round. But if the Tiger Cats lose tomorrow uh, against Ottawa, then they go to B.C., on a short week. So that's that travel. It's the three-hour time zone, so that's next Thursday. Then, a week after that, they're home to Montreal. They saw the Eastern game start. They're at home to Montreal. Then they go to take on the Argos. Then the Argos come back here, a home-and-home. And And then the Tiger Cats are in Montreal. And then they uh, go to Toronto. So they're going back and forth, back and forth. So this is a key ball game for them. We will see what happens. And, of course, a reminder very quickly tomorrow that the CHML's pregame show starts at 4. The fifth quarter starts at 30 minutes after the final whistle. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Should I get the COVID shot if I'm uh, not, uh, you know, 15 years old? Should I have my grandkids get it? We're talking about something that has uh, been... uh, the province talked about this yesterday. You heard it on CHML News. Ontario now allowing all adults to book fourth doses of a COVID vaccine. But there is some suggestions that maybe healthy young adults can choose to wait until the fall. So this really hopefully is not too confusing. But joining us to talk about this is Brendan Liu, medical resident with Hamilton Public Health Services. Brendan, thank you for joining us. Happy Friday. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So let's uh, right off the top uh, talk about the fourth dose in the city. May I suggest that uh, as a medical resident, you think this is a good idea? So we're quite uh, happy and excited to to have this eligibility opened up for our community members uh, receiving their their second booster dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. That's uh, that's their fourth dose overall. Uh, we we really have seen that this is having a big impact, particularly for our community members that are at high risk of having severe disease from COVID-19. And so that's our older adults over the age of 60, including uh, those that may have other 
underlying medical conditions. And so uh, we were, we're opening up that eligibility now for individuals uh, over the age of 18 to 59 uh, for that fourth dose. But we, but we uh, still want to really emphasize and recommend uh, that uh, second booster dose, that fourth dose overall for those people with underlying medical conditions or who may be more vulnerable to COVID-19. So actually, when you break it down that way, it's the, yes, it's the fourth shot, so to speak, but it's a, it's the second booster shot, which is the fourth shot. Uh, that's uh, that's the way we should be looking at it? Yes, absolutely. So, so we're really encouraging people to stay up to date on their COVID-19 vaccinations, and that includes all of the doses that they are recommended to receive. And so for particularly for our uh, vulnerable older adults, as well as those with underlying medical conditions, that includes uh, a second COVID-19 booster dose, our, our fourth, fourth dose overall. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, it seems the more people I talk to uh, now, it seems, I don't want to use the term everybody, but it seems a lot more people now are getting COVID than maybe when this first started. And they're all, well, I shouldn't say all, a lot of people are saying that because they did get the vaccination before, either the first or second, that the symptoms generally aren't as bad as what they expected if they didn't get the vaccination. Is that a fair statement generally in what you find your your anecdotal evidence? So thank you so much for that for that question. And that's a really, a really great point to raise. So we know that COVID-19 vaccination continues to provide really excellent protection against the most severe uh, outcomes related to COVID-19 that we really want to avoid. And those are things like death, uh, symptoms that are severe enough to uh, for people to end up admitted to hospital or in, or in intensive care. And so even though um, we are seeing higher levels of transmission of COVID-19 in our community, we're, we're continuing to see great protection from those severe outcomes. Uh, and, and that's a, a reason why we're really encouraging people to stay up to date on their COVID-19 vaccinations, including all the doses that they're recommended for. Our guest uh, on Hamilton today, medical resident with Hamilton Public Health Services, Brendan Liu. I'm wondering, uh, Brendan, now, when it comes down to breaking down timelines and what have you, uh, it it should be uh, pointed out, is it six months or more? Like if somebody got their third vaccine or the third uh, shot, maybe in April, would it be too soon for them to look now at considering getting their fourth shot? So with this eligibility that has been opened up for for this uh, this next booster dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, we're really recommending folks to have uh, who are receiving it have had uh, their most recent dose of the vaccine at least five months before Uh, that uh, that extended interval we were finding has shown to provide a better level of immune immunity and protection. Uh, but individuals can receive a booster dose on on as narrow of a, a three month interval from their previous. But we're we're really recommending for folks to receive it if it's been five months since their last dose of the vaccine. Uh, are uh, people less What's the term I'm looking for here? Less proactive in wearing masks and stuff. It seems when uh, the government kind of said things were getting reasonably back to normal, it was like almost a sigh of relief. Uh, Should uh, some people still be wearing masks just to be on the safe side, despite the fact that now we can go outside and enjoy the weather and there isn't quite as much uh, transmission outside as there is inside? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great a great point and a great question. Uh, with the summer weather, we're definitely seeing a lot of opportunities for people to to spend time outdoors in those lower risk settings. Uh, but I, I would want to emphasize that uh, for people that are spending a lot of time indoors in close quarters with a lot of other people, uh, masking can still provide a really excellent additional layer of protection to reduce risk of transmission of COVID nineteen. And so it's really one of the tools that we have in our tool belt. To continue to use, particularly in those higher risk settings to protect ourselves from COVID-19. So there's the update on getting the fourth dose for a lot of people. Brendan Liu, medical resident with Hamilton Public Health Services. Thank you for taking time. I hope you get a chance to enjoy at least part of the sunny weekend. And uh, thank you very much for the update. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A vigil is being planned for tonight after the vicious attack on a 46-year-old woman not far from the General Hospital. You heard that story here on CHML. And joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this particular incident and what's going on is the executive director of the Sex Workers Association of Hamilton. It's Yelena Vermillion. And she joins us on CHML. First of all, Yelena, thank you very much. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And it's Sex Workers Action Program and yep. Yelena. Thank you so much for having us. I uh, wanted to ask, first of all, uh, how is the person involved? How is, uh, how is the victim doing uh, as we uh, speak today? So since the last time we've spoken, um, her tracheal intubation has been removed. So she's now breathing on her own and she's now starting the transition to eat on her own. She, her eating tube has been removed, but she's not eating fully on her own because of the throat uh, soreness and tenderness from intubation. So they're in the transitory period of, of being able to have her eat normally again. Our guest, Yelena Vermillion from the Sex Worker Action Program, and uh, there is a, a vigil being planned for tonight, not far from the General Hospital where the attack took place. Uh, tell us about um, how all this came about. Obviously, everybody wanted to help, and everybody was rather uh, obviously disturbed by what happened. Yeah, so eventually, essentially, we, we heard about the attack, um, and we reached out uh, to, the, to the police, to the local media, to see if we can figure out um, who the mother is, where she was staying. We were able to get the contact information, uh, I believe it was through Detective Jen Chambers, uh, who was originally on the assault case. Um, she, speaks, she spoke to the mother, the mother said yes, that we could have her contact information. And so, uh, you know, I introduced myself, what we do, explained that we would like to help in this circumstance. Um, and then it was at that time she expressed that she would like to have a vigil, um, you know, created an event created for her daughter because um, at that time it wasn't certain whether or not she was going to live. Uh, she was still in a coma. She wasn't uh, speaking and it wasn't it wasn't certain whether she was going to regain consciousness at that time. Um, now that she has regained consciousness, the mother is still very strongly about having the vigil. Um, and she also was asking for financial support. So she came from out of uh, West in Hamilton, or sorry, in Woodstock to Hamilton to be here with her daughter while she was infirm in the hospital. Um, and she was staying locally at a house uh, that accommodates people and families uh, for people who are seeing their infirmed loved ones. So um, we were able to raise money. We were able to raise just under $9,000, I'm happy to report, for the mother and the victim. So part of that uh, went directly to the home where she's staying. So 
she now is is able to stay for a significant amount of time while her daughter recovers in Hamilton and they will have money to keep uh, the victim as well as as the mother um, comfortable and to cover any potential incurred expenses as a result of the attack. Now, I understand that uh, as part of uh, what is happening tonight, that the mother will be speaking to the crowd. Is that correct? Yes, we will have a musical performance by Lee Reed. I will be speaking. Uh, I have a, a speech prepared, and so will the mother. I will say the mother is quite nervous. Um, she she told us yesterday, or was it yesterday? Sorry, she told us this week. It's been a busy week. Um, that Global News was actually staking out the hospital, um, trying to find and, and identify her against the wishes of the mother. Um, so she is a little bit nervous. She was previously uh, decided that she was going to say her own real name and say her daughter's name, the the victim's name, but she was a little spooked by being staked out by the hospital. She actually faked a limp in order to be seen as a normal patient and not as the mother of the patient. Um, So she's going to be wearing, she told me a baggy sweater and some sunglasses, and she's going to use a pseudonym, a fake name today, but um, she's going to be there. She will be speaking and she will be protected by the community for sure. How much response have you had from the community basically calling to say, can I help? Um, what's involved? And uh, I'm going to be there. What's the response been like? You mentioned the $9,000, which is great. But as far as a vigil tonight, what's the response been like? Incredibly huge. We've had a large uptake in the media response. Most media outlets are very interested in this event. Um, We know that CBC, CHCH, and The Spectator will be there live tonight. Um, So that's wonderful. And you're speaking to us, so we appreciate that coverage as well. Uh, The amount of phone calls we've received, um, huge. I received over 20 phone calls just regarding this issue, regarding the fundraiser, regarding the vigil. Had some personal conversations with some, uh, for example, former nurses in the city, former social workers in the city, people who used to do sex work decades ago, who are seeing the work we're doing now in support of our community members who have been attacked um, for being sex workers. Um, The the support and the response has been really, really positive. Uh, I think that the love shines beyond all of the detractors, uh, you know, comments or perspectives. And I think that what's really important is coming together when someone's been harmed to say that that's not right and that we stand against that and we stand for better outcomes for people who are vulnerable because of the law in Canada. Before we wrap up, we did want to talk about the Sex Worker Action Program. I know that you've opened up a a new, um, I guess, office would be the term, uh, a storefront on on Barton Street. Talk about what it is that your group uh, does and a very important message that you want to impart to the community. Absolutely. First and foremost, we cannot help sex workers without taking them out of the conflict of the law. We need to decriminalize sex work. We need to remove the criminal penalties, which violate sex workers' charter rights and freedoms. And to tell you a little bit about the 771 Barton Street East location, we have a location here. Uh, It's meant as a drop-in area for sex workers. We do have a drop-in day specifically on Saturdays between 6 and 9 p.m. The things that they can access here, um, there is a bathroom that people can clean up with if they need to come off the street and get cleaned up. They can um, access the cosmetics, the harm reduction products. Uh, They can rest. They can access free clothing. They can have their clothing washed for free. They can make a meal for free. They can access some of the food here. Um, we have snacks. We have uh, like refreshments as well. Um, and then there's also a large library that is consistent of a, an archive that I've helped create over the last three years, which is in uh, collaboration with the Hamilton Public Library. So there's sex worker centered media, films, documentaries, etc. Um, and we also have an art space. People can uh, 
can make art with. And we also have supplies for safer sex, for example, condoms, dental dams, uh, fentanyl test strips, um, COVID masks, tests, uh, et cetera. So it's, it's a community drop-in support space for sex workers centered around sex workers' rights and needs. Um, we're right in the strip, the stroll, the area where sex workers, street-based sex workers walk in Hamilton, and we're here to provide them support and non-judgmental um, care in the city. And now I know that the vigil starts at 7 o'clock tonight, uh, goes until roughly 9 o'clock, uh, I understand? Yes, it does. We are going to be meeting around 357 Barton Street East, which is between... It's at the alleyway between the businesses of Daryl Allen Salon and Salamaria. Salamaria is the 357s of Barton Street East. It is not far from the intersection of Emerald. Um, as I stated earlier, Lee Reed will be performing. I will be speaking. The mother of the victim will be speaking. Um, and as I understand it, we have a representative from Matthew Green's office there, CHCH, The Spectator, and CBC Hamilton will also be there. So um, we have a very, very um, strong energy, uh, and we look forward to a large crowd tonight in the march. Yelena Vermillion from the Sex Worker Action Program, thank you very much for joining us on what I'm sure is going to be obviously a very emotional day. It's been a, on a very emotional time for you and and everybody uh, that is uh, involved in this particular case. Wish you the best of luck tonight and a speedy recovery uh, to the uh, woman involved. And hopefully uh, things uh, next time we talk, it'll be something maybe a little more positive than what's been going on for the last little while. Best of luck tonight and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Tom. Have yourself a wonderful week and take care. We talked a little bit about this uh, last half hour. Health Canada has approved Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine for kids five and under. What are the ramifications of this? So we thought, you know, the best person to talk about this, the always ebullient Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family doctor, vaccine researcher, the founder of Prime Health Research and a medical columnist. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. I like the always ebullient part. I'm not sure that my kids would agree, but let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a Friday afternoon, so that's good. So let's off the top. Um, uh, a lot of people aren't quite sure about getting kids under the age of five vaccinated. May I'm not going to suggest that I'm putting words in your mouth here, doctor, but I would suggest as a doctor, uh, you may think this is a good idea. Is that a fair statement? Well, I'm pretty excited that it's available. And like all vaccination programs, we try to vaccinate the many to prevent the few complications. So let's talk about if a child gets COVID-19, and we're talking BA5, what's the likelihood of getting hospitalized with that? Answer, 1 in 6,250. Those are the Ontario numbers right now. So they are low. But if you happen to be that child, and who are those children? Well, we've seen a 15-fold increase in hospitalizations in children who are especially young. We're talking, you know, the very young, between, you know, under two, because their immune system is less mature. So they, don't, they haven't built up the library yet. So that does place them at somewhat higher risk. All right. Now let's uh, talk about, um, you know, <laughs> I've heard from a lot of people and parents that say, you know what, I don't know if I want to give my kid any, uh, you know, four or five. They're in daycare. They have to be subjected to germs. We've been in a bubble for over two years. Nobody has any immune system. And maybe why should I give them this particular vaccine? To which you say what, doctor? Well, if we take a look at how sticky the immunity is 
of natural infection. Just in general to COVID-19, it's been very poor. It is not a very sticky form of immunity, nor is it particularly effective. So the problem with just get the infection and you'll be fine is that it does not give reliable enough immunity. And if we compare that to vaccination, at least in older children, that's where the data is, the real world data, the big data, it's in, it's in older kids. We know that it gives a much better and more reliable immunity because it's the same dose for everybody. And what dose are we talking about? This is a quarter of the adult dose that they're giving, 25 micrograms, two doses, and four weeks apart. That's what was approved. But if you talk about natural infection, this is absolutely fascinating. Data from HEMA Quebec shows that probably well over half of children have actually had COVID-19 Omicron. And that's just from January to March 31st. It's extremely contagious. Most of them have been asymptomatic and mild disease. So they don't, parents don't even realize. So the vaccine was not studied in kids who had the disease. In fact, they studied it specifically in kids who did not have antibodies for having had the disease. They did not have the disease. And the vaccine efficacy proved to be about 50% in children six months to two years of age and 37% in children two to five years of age. So for most kids who get vaccinated, they're gonna have what's called hybrid immunity which gives the strongest and best immunity we have. Doctor, you bring up a, a very interesting point because I know parents, especially moms, have a gut instinct when it comes to what is going on with their child. So what is the difference then? Um, you talk about asymptomatic. So a three-year-old toddler who has a runny nose or, you know, runs a fever on occasion because it does happen or a mummy have a sore throat. Uh, how can they tell the difference between what could be viral infection and what could be COVID? Yeah, COVID is a viral infection, just saying, not trying to be too smarty pants on you, but COVID is a viral infection. Answer, you can't tell. I can't tell, no one can tell. The only way you're going to know is by swabbing it, and frankly, there's just so much COVID-19 out there. In my view, it's COVID-19 until proven otherwise. Think about those numbers that I just said. Over half of kids, up to 70, 70% of kids have had COVID-19. That's the metric right now that that's going about, and that's natural disease. So how do, you, how do you know that? Well, you have to do a blood test, which nobody's doing on kids. So that's, the blood test could actually tell you if the child had the disease, but no one's doing that. So the medication, the, the purpose of vaccination is to ensure that that immunity is both robust enough to protect them from future disease and sticky enough. Because what I call natural disease, well, that's a lot of different things. For some people, it might have been a very small viral load that they were exposed to. And for other kids, it might have been a much larger viral load. So the problem with natural disease is we don't, we, we, it's not reliable enough. One more quick uh, point, and you brought up this figure, and I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm kind of shaking my head. You said 70% of kids you think at one point or another have COVID? Had COVID? Yes. That's data from up to that number. Now, there's a range that they give. It's between 40, 40, and 70. 70% of kids are believed to have had Omicron, and that's between January 1 to March 31st of this year. 
And they, how, how can they tell that? They tell that from blood samples that they have that they're following. So over half of Canadians have had Omicron as well. The numbers are way higher than people realize. So what does this mean? It means that most people will have the advantage of having hybrid immunity as long as they're vaccinated. Vaccination matters, and it matters a lot. The likelihood of getting hospitalized is very low for any one child. But we know that children who are more likely to tend to be children who have other problems, neurologic disabilities. They might be obese. They might be diabetic, have underlying heart or lung conditions. It is an absolute no-brainer. Those children need to get vaccinated because they are at higher risk. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, uh, run out of time, doctor. This is fascinating. We'll have to get you back on the air to talk about this soon. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, the founder of Prime Health Research and a medical columnist, thank you for the update on COVID for kids under five. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Ted. Very best to you. Scott Thompson isn't worried about ruffling a few feathers. In fact, he kind of likes it. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Burlington is the latest Ontario city to approve a municipal accommodation tax. It takes effect starting in October. And joining us to talk about this for a few minutes, uh, please welcome Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, your worship. Good afternoon. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Great to talk with you. So let's uh, talk, first of all, about this um, initiative. It's not uncommon to the city of Burlington. I know that there are other cities that are involved in doing something like this. There are a number of cities in Ontario, including uh, right around us, Oakville being one, Toronto, Niagara. It's a 4% tax on accommodation and hotels, so it is very precise and targets uh, folks who visit, and it's intended to improve uh, visitor experience and and visitor awareness of Burlington. So uh, it takes effect October 1st. Now, it's interesting because I'm sure that when you are out and about of talking to the constituents and the residents of Burlington, a lot of people say, you know what you ought to do with the city, you know? And, of course, the question from uh, politicians is, well, how are we going to pay for this? I'm not suggesting this is the be-all, end-all, a panacea, as it were, but this is a good start. Well, this will give our tourism sector much-needed injection of funds to market our city so that we can be competitive with municipalities all around us that already have those funds because they've brought the tax in. And, in fact, our uh, Burlington Tourism uh, Board asked for this. Uh, businesses asked for this. Uh, the, the local representation from the Ontario Hotel uh, Association asked for this tax. They need to compete. So it's not often that you have businesses or or residents asking for a tax, but that was the case here. And it's interesting, too, because I know that uh, I've spent uh, a lot of time for the last little while in Burlington. And again, on a on a spectacular day like today, what an absolute open invitation to the city of Burlington when you go to Spencer Smith Park and just gaze out at the water. What an absolute jewel that area of Burlington is. Well, we are very unique in that we have our uh, quaint downtown right on the shores of Lake Ontario. We have world-class festivals, uh, world-recognized um, in in uh, Canada, largest Canadian uh, rib fest, largest free music festival with Sound of Music. So we get visitors from all over the country and, uh, and the United States. And so we're just asking the visitors that come here to pay a little extra so that we can uh, spread the good news uh, to them and have them visit. And this actually protects 
our residents from having their own taxes increased because they don't have to absorb the cost of marketing the city in their tax base. We ask uh, visitors to contribute to that. I know that uh, the numbers have been crunched, so roughly between four hundred fifty and seven hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue. Is that uh, what what you're talking about here? That is, and this will be shared equally between Tourism Burlington and the city. So we will deploy some of those funds ourselves for things like additional events. Uh, we have so many events that are, are new and coming to the city. Uh, folks are asking for help to market those, and we want to just keep uh, Burlington being the place where the action is. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, as I say, I've spent a, a lot of time down there, and and the downtown, like, there, you know, for example, you drive down Plains Road, and you got those little, little, almost like storefronts, the little quaint little shops as you go down Plains Road and then you get closer to the city and then you go through the downtown core and as you say you've you've got you know smaller shops and then you look out and you see beautiful things like Spencer's on the waterfront and the hotel um, it, 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 this is becoming I would suspect one of uh, maybe not Canada's best known secrets but it's important to let people know exactly what a jewel you have well, and we consistently rank in the top uh, five of best municipalities across the country on, you know, anyone that does a survey, we're right up there. Uh, what number one, number two, number three. Uh, this year, we were number uh, seven on an, on an international or a national ranking. And we have both the waterfront and our uh, mom and pop unique uh, businesses, our outdoor patios, and what a day for it uh, today. Uh, but we also have the World Biosphere Reserve. We have the Niagara Escarpment. We have natural areas. We have our farm economy. People can go pick their own strawberries. They can pick up locally made honey, uh, local products in our agriculture area. We are half rural and we have the Bruce Trail. Uh, we have conservation parks in our borders. Uh, some of those areas are free to visit for folks. So uh, whether you like the natural environment, whether you like, um, you know, excellent cuisine and uh, the outdoor patio experience or being right on the lake, uh, there is something really for everybody here in Burlington. And I should also mention the one of things that I have to take part in this year is uh, it is a legend in Burlington, and that is the Butter Tart uh, 5K run, which is coming up in August. So just just, just so you know, Mayor, I've been talking about this for a long time because I love Butter Tarts, and just the smell of those things coaxing me across the finish line means that I will hopefully run my best ever time. So I can't forget that one because that's, that's, that's a jewel, that one. That is an awesome festival. I am a Butter Tart gal myself. So <laughs> Does this mean that the Mayor will take part in this uh, 5K? Oh, I, I can't keep asking for them to let me be a judge. <laughs> <laughs> Not a judge of the butter tarts. I'm talking about taking part in the actual event. You know, oh, running, walking. Run? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, let's also talk about another jewel. Uh, you talk about the downtown core. Uh, the art gallery is great, and the Burlington Performing Arts Center have spent a lot of time there recently. That is an absolute beautiful building, and I don't know how many people know that that building actually exists. It is, uh, again, we have world-class uh, talent and local talent, and we have free jazz on the plaza. There's a little plaza right outside uh, in the summers. Uh, it is free. Come on down. Uh, jazz, uh, you know, jazz your heart out, and you can dance uh, the night away, and it doesn't cost you a penny. So we have, we have so many events that are free for the community uh, and some that, um, uh, you know, you can pay a nominal fee if you want to eat. We have a food truck festival happening this weekend. Yep. There are uh, incredible things. To do, we have we actually have a veg fest coming up. Uh, so for folks that are vegan, that uh, that that aren't um, 
you know, that want something just for them. Uh, we have that coming up in August as well. We have the Emancipation Festival. Halton Black History Awareness Society is putting that on for us uh, first week of August. So uh, there's almost there's something going on almost every weekend and sometimes uh, multiple times a week. We just had the classic car festival. So I got to I got to sit in a McLaren that uh, was orange and blue, which is which is awesome. I love those colors. So you you had to sit in it. You couldn't drive it. No, I, I tried to coax the owner into letting me uh, take a few laps around the racetrack, but uh, no, no deal yet. <laughs> okay. So, well, Mayor, I'll tell you what, we will see you. Um, I'm going to write it down. Uh, well, no, see, I'm showing you my age here. That's an expression. I'm going to put it in my phone for there the Butter go. Tart Festival in Burlington and hope to uh, see you there and and share a butter tart together and kind of com- compare recipes and just have a, have a great time on uh, what is going to be... Uh, uh, great event. So congratulations on this. I'm all for promoting a city, and this is a great way to do it that really, as you say, doesn't hurt a lot of local people because uh, the accommodation tax will affect uh, visitors coming to Burlington starting on October 1st. Absolutely. Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ted. Joining us on Hamilton today, Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson, is Hamilton Councillor Maria Pearson, who was talking about the city cracking down on homeowners who can't uh, rent their pools or who are renting their pools and backyards. And there's several reasons why they can't do it. First of all, Councillor, thank you for taking us, uh, taking the time for us. I know it's a Friday afternoon and you'd probably rather be out relaxing. (laughs) No, it's quite, uh, it's quite okay. I'm, I'm, appreciate you asking me to participate. So let's uh, talk about this. Uh, the uh, Director of Planning, uh, Steve Robichaud, and uh, and Council all talked about this. Uh, tell us basically how this came about, that uh, people cannot rent their pools and backyards to individuals for parties and family gatherings and things like that. Well, it came about, I, I don't know if I'm the first one that complained to our staff and asked them to investigate what are the bylaws and do we have regulations. Um, because I've had complaints from residents of my ward who have been affected by uh, Swimfleet as the company that oversees the bookings um, operation in the ward. And now I understand there's other counselors who have been having the same experiences. So, no, they are not allowed. They are not um, uh, there is no bylaw. They're, they are not allowed in the residential zone. It's a commercial business. You're running an operation. Uh, and that's not allowed. So uh, this uh, business, as you say, is called Swimply, and basically people would uh, go onto that website and offer their services, offer their pool, for example, for a fee. Yes. So they offer, um, I mean, I can tell you it's not just the pool. So there's, uh, I mean, they offer, um, you know, an outdoor washroom, um, barbecue pits, uh, basketball courts, um, a rental of towels, even the point of towels. It, it's quite a project. Even um, even an outdoor projector is a possibility. Wow. I yeah. uh, wasn't uh, aware of that. Now, I understand, as you mentioned, it's not only yourself. I understand that your colleague in Flamborough, Judy Partridge, has also right. had a lot of people uh, calling and complaining about people having backyard parties. Yes, and, and it's the number of people. So particular situation that I was dealing with is, um, you know, they were hosting up to 45 and then increased to 50 people at a time. They could, have, they could have a number of events in a day. So somebody would book for a birthday party or a shower or 
a SAG. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen or just, just people just wanting to book it for a nice big party. The so, problem is it's the impact on the surrounding neighborhood. You don't move into your home expecting to have a commercial operation next to you that can run from, you know, bookings could be from 7 a.m. to 12 a.m., um, you know, when they don't end at 12 a.m., they, they carry on until everybody vacates. So, you know, there's, there's that concern. There's the vehicles. There's the noise. There's the partying. And that's not what we expect when we purchase our homes. Now, I know that uh, as you talked about, you know, parties going on well past midnight. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not at the, that age anymore. I, you know, <laughs> in, in my second or third dream, by, by midnight, I'm fast asleep. But things like parking issues, for, for example. Um, and I know that uh, parking can be a big issue in this city and people uh, complaining about people parking on the streets and the 12-hour bylaw and what have you. But, but obviously having a whole, I mean, we, we have seen, Councillor, not necessarily in this case, but other uh, stories of other uh, cities where people have have gone to a house, especially during COVID, and there's been literally hundreds of people parked mm-hmm. on, on a country road, jamming up traffic. I'm not suggesting that's the case here, but that could be the case if somebody has a house in rural Stony Creek. Well, and that would be, and those are the Airbnbs that I'm also dealing with in my ward, and we're now going to be licensing them, hopefully coming the new year. We just passed that, that uh, direction for staff to finalize the bylaw, but Swimsley is a little different because it's not allowed. Um, I mean, public, you know, a person's private backyard pool, residential pool, is not classed as a public pool. And there are there are levels of regulations to operate a public pool. I don't know if people realize that. There are very strict regulations when you have more than just your family members and friends using your pool. I'm wondering, Councillor, um, have you had any anecdotal evidence from uh, people that have, uh, the bylaw people that have gone to somebody's home? A, are the people that are renting out the house, are they there generally? Or B, what is their response when they get told that you can't do this? You're speaking to the Airbnbs now. Yep. So, um, no, I haven't spoken to bylaw, but I have had bylaw police involved in a couple of situations. That's a little while ago. Uh, and the homeowners were not at present at the home. So that that bylaw that's coming in will stipulate that it can only be operated in a principal residence. So that you have to own it and be there. It can't be like having a quasi-rental house that you decide at whatever given time you're just going to open it up for an Airbnb for a weekend. I understand uh, some of the costs involved. Um, the, uh, one of the places uh, in Stony Creek, $80 an hour for 50 guests. I would suggest, obviously, Councillor, 50 guests is a lot of people anyway. If you're having a family gathering and you have a you know uh, a big backyard or lots of acreage or whatever, that's one thing. But, but uh, that fee for 50 guests, that concerns me because obviously that's a whole lot of, and it could be a lot more than 50 guests coming in. Yeah, but that's um, that's the Swimsley payment, right? Yep. That's not City of Hamilton, so let's be careful. Right. It's not ours. Yep. So it could be, I can give you an example. It could be, um, say, they charge $75 an hour, $5 for each initial guest, um, $75 plus $175, but it could, it could add up to $250 an hour. Then they had, you could then add on the price of a barbecue use, 
uh, the price of renting towels, you know, $10, $20, the price of using the fire pit, the outdoor projector, they're all fees on it. So you could be well over. I mean, I've got an example here that a homeowner provided. Um, 19 hours per day at $250 an hour, and all the extras is a potential $4,800. Wow. Yeah. And obviously this is causing concern. So, and, so and nothing's and nothing's and nothing's benefiting the surrounding neighborhood. So when you mention about parking, I mean it's not just parking on the street. It would be, you know, I think well, I'm not going to say the people would accept it because these are strangers coming into their neighborhood right. day in and day out. The concern is parking and blocking driveways, parking and blocking fire hydrants. You know, it's it's just the total disregard that you know you are in somebody's neighborhood. So I understand that this uh, now will not be permitted, obviously, under the bylaw. Uh, what is never the, permitted. What, what is the next... It was never permitted. Right. What is the uh, next step as far as following through on this and, um, and kind of letting people know that uh, what uh, they're, they're planning on doing is something that they can't do? Well, it's going to be a PR uh, process for our, our city, for bylaw, and it will also be bylaw enforcement. So obviously this program tonight and getting the information out there through the media is, um, you know, and making sure that bylaw are now aware that, yes, you have, you have the right to enforce that they're contravening our zoning bylaw by operating a, a commercial businesses and residential zone. Councillor Maria Pearson, uh, thank you for this. This is something that perhaps people weren't aware of, and I'm glad we've uh, had a chance to, if you will, shine the light on that. Have yourself a great weekend. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You too. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you to uh, Tom McKay for uh, keeping everything on track today. Show producer Will Erskine. I am back all next week at this time from 3 until 6. Scott Thompson is off. Radley's off. There's a whole bunch of people in the news center off. So uh, we'll be here. in one way or another because, uh, you know, it's the holiday season and we'll find uh, lots of stuff to talk about, I'm sure, uh, next week on Hamilton Today. Ted Michaels, have a great weekend uh, here on 900 CHML. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.